0: Got in touch with you a while ago, but I know you were far too busy at the time regarding the Maria's shoe case. And um, I did a video recently where I was giving my thoughts on um a skeptic who was looking at Maria's shoe and was effectively saying that it was, you know, disproven and it was proven to be visible from wherever else, and these studies a bit. And I, I kind of gave my thoughts, but I couldn't give enough because I don't know enough about the case itself. So Paul saw it and came back to you and said, um, or came back to me and said ask kimberly if you'll be interested in coming on did you watch the video yes you did so you you heard his Um, argument i did
1: uh that's why i formed a good opinion of you darren to be honest i this is for the recording um you are as an interviewer you are clear you are uh you, you exhibit good critical thinking skills which means you're able to examine things like you said on the earlier broadcast. Uh, well, I've never met Kimberly Clark Sharp, so I can't speak to that. I thought, well, yay. I
0: a lot of people that. speak
1: to it without ever meeting me. Um, and that you're open and charming and pretty cute.
0: So <laughs> I try to be, you know, as open as possible, because I think a lot of people in these realms of, of research are very much, I suppose not dogmatic, but kind of are not, humble enough to realize that there's so much regarding consciousness and you know the nature of human beings that we we could never understand fully and there's so much we don't know that we should be open to everything but equally you know you can't form opinions on things without knowing the full context surrounding why people believe what they do so you know as far as I'm concerned it'd be wrong for me to come to any conclusions on anything I don't know inside and out you know which is so. I'm, I'm glad you watched the video because that will also give us a, a baseline for um, Paula Gia's arguments um, against the, the um, Maria Shue case, and that would be a good thing to really cover. Yeah.
1: Which I what, what did he say that I I made up for money and attention. I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So well, un- unfortunately, a lot. I'll of... be waiting
1: for my check, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Unfortunately, there are a lot of people who who do do it for that reason, especially you know those that don't have genuine experiences but and there have been a few so you can understand his but you know to to project that onto every case is not a not a decent thing to do really without you know even consulting you or asking about it to to you yourself but you can understand why he would consider that possibility
1: i have been dealing with skeptics for decades and uh some very well known ones that i have actually really respected and each to their own it comes down to measurement, and near-death experiences are primarily subjective. Mm. They, what you can measure are the after effects maybe, but what goes on internally, no other person can say it happened or didn't happen. Uh, it, it, that's impossible. That's like saying, uh, oh, I had a dream. I went to Paris last night, and uh, I had a wonderful croissant. And then someone would come along and go, oh, you didn't dream that. Mm. Like well, but I did.
0: Prove (laughs) it. So So
1: that's the subjective part of the MDE near-death experience. The measurable parts happen when things like the shoe. um, uh, Yeah, there are a lot of. Let me back up a bit and say, um, this month is 40 years since I founded the Seattle International Association for Near Death Studies. We average um, 55 is like our, our go-to, up to 125, as low as 25. But consistently over the years, it's been about 55 people, mm. which means I have talked to a lot of near-death experiencers, lots and lots. Maria and the tennis shoe are – that's just the best well-known one. But there's mm. lots of other cases like that. For instance um, – Seattle is a a town that for uh, many, many, many years depended economically on the Boeing company. And that put a lot of engineers into the population of Seattle. Now, when engineers have a near-death experience, it's different. Their brains, engineers are just different. Are they really human? Let's discuss. But they're just different. They categorize and analyze and carry on. It's really a hoot, but an engineer has a near-death experience Mm. because the approach is amazing. But one of them, like Maria, was at work, people around him, uh, heart attack, needed resuscitation. But while he was waiting for medics to show up, he was above looking down and saw an engineering instrument that the team had been missing on top of, I think it was a file cabinet or so. And it was there. Um, it just, you know, there weren't a bunch of nurses to spread that story around. But uh, and then another engineer who had a near-death experience uh, on when I was working on a coronary care unit. Um, I mean, it was hilarious in a way, but I'm making fun of him. But he he came back to my office with like uh, this three-ring binder, you know, just <laughs> categorizing and then you know plastic encased showing it and really, really broke it down. So um, when engineers have any kind of out-of-body experience, their precision is impressive in the reporting of it. But uh, again, though, skeptics can come at people and go, oh, no, it didn't. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. Mm-hmm. But it, as you said, it's not based on relationship or study. It's just really, at the end of the day, An opinion. Mm. And I haven't met anyone who's actually gone to college and majored in skepticism. There's no, there's, there's there's no major, there's no degree called Mm. that. So Mm. um, it it comes down to opinions, because Mm. no skeptic can prove it, their point of view. And so uh, I used to care. But, you know, I, I, at my age and time, I know what happened, happened. And, um, you know, if it is interesting to one or if it comforts one, that's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it doesn't, that's fine. Yeah. I just mind it when it goes into publication for the public. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a chance to say, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Unless I write a rebuttal. Which I have, and uh, I thought that rebuttal would have um, settled the dust on the subject. But if people haven't read the rebuttal or any other information about near-death experiences, then um, yeah, what's the point of even having yeah. a conversation? I,
0: I think I, I think the general problem with near-death experience research is that the implications of, especially you know the. Um, what Jan Holden calls veridical perception the implications of that are so far removed from our current understanding of the brain and consciousness that the default would be to assume that there's a natural explanation that just hasn't been discovered yet and that these implications can't possibly take place because as I say they're so far removed from our current understandings Um, and I think generally a lot of skeptical ideas come from as you say not understanding, again, the full context surrounding why the proponents believe what they do, and especially the you know the, the scholarly components like Dr. Bruce Grayson, Jan Holden, Penny Sartori, Pim van Lommel, among others. Um, because I think it seems that a lot of people believe that our belief that near-death experiences are genuine out-of-body phenomena, I suppose, stems from um, Eben Alexander's case, Maria's Shoe case, And all the others that have been very highly publicized but they don't seem to take for granted or they don't seem to realize that as you say it's very unwise to base your full understanding of near-death experiences on the media's interpretation of them as you say we have countless case studies and um you know i believe meta-analyses of of, um reports of near-death experiences as well as several retrospective and prospective studies done on the subject, um, we've got cases in the, the book The Self Does Not Die which are third-party veridical perception cases among others so you know many sceptics are aware of near-death experiences through Maria's shoe and through Eben Alexander and through um, Mary Neal or whoever else which although do have veridical aspects are, p- are mainly the, the hype surrounding them is the subjective aspects. And them telling their stories as opposed to the objective side of them. So of course when you have something that is purely subjective and it's shown as purely subjective there is no way of of showing that that took place because as you said you can't measure subjective experiences. And that it seems is where the the sceptical arguments are based around to try to explain away the subjective part. But you know I've always said to me I would very easily believe that near-death experiences are Physical, as a result of um, chemical, electric, you know, neurochemical, neuroelectrical phenomena, until you have the vertical aspect involved, and then that can't be said anymore, really, unless yeah, it tries to be explained Even if away. there's,
1: right, even if there's one case,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it throws a skeptical. <laughs> we we toss it right back. I, in fact, I really would love to turn a spotlight on skepticism or skeptics uh with the same degree of disbelief that you know i'm i've been used to and others have but um uh, i forgot my point (laughs) (laughs) i got lost in yeah it
0: happens to me an awful lot oh oh the (laughs) veridical (laughs) stuff
1: yeah it just takes one let's go with the shoe Mm -hmm. for instance here i am minding my own business young social worker seattle washington university of washington employee uh Eager to climb the academic ladder and loving my job because I I worked as um, a social worker. Well I still, by the way, am a licensed clinical social worker in the state of Washington, which uh, clinically is the PhD level, so I can practice legally in any state uh, of the United States. So I my mental health background and my death and dying background come into heavy play. Um, but uh, and I keep, guy, I, I keep wandering away in my brain for vertical perceptions. I don't know, Darren. <laughs> I need to get grounded. <laughs> I had something fabulous to say, and I don't remember. Oh yes, it's not just vertical perception, though. There are times when people have known stuff there was no way they could know. Mm. Like, for instance. The death of someone.
0: Yes, the so-called um peak in dairy when experience.
1: When they are not anywhere in a position, being pretty much dead themselves, to know that. That's cropped up. Um mm,
0: the so-called peak in dairy uh, experience. Seeing
1: odd things. Well, like a shoe on the wall, or uh spaghetti sauce mm, on the tie. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, little, little details that why. I mean, they're not like um big deals, other than the fact that they were being resuscitated at the time. And how we can see without eyeballs, I still don't get. The whole mind-brain thing, this is newly evolving, but if you think about it, I had a near-death experience, and part of it involved watching someone I never saw before uh, do mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. My dad was with me And he said, yeah, that was a guy, I could describe him. He was my validation for that and other things, which was a huge relief. Um, With the shoe, I was the validation. Um, Maria, this patient, wanted someone to find the shoe and validate her experience. It fell to me, oh, this is where I I wandered off, I'm coming back now. It fell to me as a social worker, again, the academically ambitious, young, death and dying, I want to help people social worker to wander into that situation. But um, then the tables turned, so so now there's a shoe and uh, I can validate Maria's experience, which was stunning. And then I started getting skeptical responses. So then I passed it on to it. It's like, well, I want to talk to the doctor who was mm. in charge. I talked to the doctor in charge into one interview, and he said, no more. I'm not doing it. Because then they, they the big amount of skeptics, went after him. Mm. There's just no end to it. So um, people have said to me, oh, show me the shoe, and then I'll believe. I have the shoe, to the best of my knowledge, somewhere. Out in our garage, and I've long said, "Come clean our garage, and you can have the shoe." But we have a 900 square foot garage of a family of five stuff. And I'm not going through it. No, and it doesn't matter because look what I can do right here in my very own office. <laughs> here is the shoe. This is really it. I wear it all the time. I mean, who do you know? Mm. I, I guess. I guess it could be dated by. A, the tennis shoe company as to when it was but mm. that is endless it's just yeah I mean, even
0: even so they say you know show me the shoe and i'll believe no you won't because it okay here's a shoe as you say here's a shoe this is still what we were saying it's not the fact that does the shoe exist or not that's the that's the argument it's was it visible from where it was so whether you see the shoe or not and you know the shoe exists doesn't provide any evidence that it actually was visible from where it is so no it's not going to convince you Um, So I think what what would be helpful, if you could, would be to describe the entire case for those who aren't familiar and why it's so strong. And then the arguments, the the common arguments that were put against it, as well as um, some of that that Paul mentioned, and um, your response to those would be ideal.
1: Okay, well, let's go down the rabbit hole. Back to young (laughs) social worker, blah, 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 but just doing my job at a very busy place, Harborview Medical Center in Seattle, Washington in the United States serves a landmass of one fourth of the United States. So that's a big chunk. Mm. And so uh, where I worked, which is intensive care and coronary care, I was very busy all the time. So uh, one night, uh, I didn't work nights, but a woman named Maria was admitted. Um, she was Hispanic.
0: Is that her real English name or is that, a, is that a pseudonym? What? Is that a real name or is that a pseudonym, Maria?
1: Maria was a real name. Was a real name. But then, uh, I, I, gosh, a long time ago, I forgot her last name. And it's really common. And I saved the admitting chart work of all of my favorite patients when I left because I wanted to remember them. So mm. back to the garage. Her, it's called a face sheet. Her face sheet's out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. It I would have to be because I was close to her. I might add, um, keep interrupting myself, but this wasn't like a, a flash in the pan, the story I'm about to tell. Maria was in the hospital for three weeks. That shoe sat proudly, and more and more people came by to gawk. Then I followed her in outpatient cardiology clinic for three years, and then I went backpacking for a few months in Europe and came back. One of my graduate students took my caseload and we had lost her. I didn't see her again, so I don't know what happened to her. Um, but it wasn't like, oh, I met this woman and I mean, I knew this woman. I was her social worker mm. and her honesty can't be measured by me because she saw things that I could validate and the nursing staff could validate and the physician staff could validate. Janitorial services could have validated this case. It just was there for all to see. No secret whisperings about it whatsoever. It was a big deal at the time. So what happened is that uh, Maria was admitted. She'd never been to Seattle before. She's actually from about 100 miles east of our city, but had a massive heart attack, was brought in through the emergency room, and then up one floor to coronary care. The emergency room and coronary care unit are on the north side of the building. Coronary care unit on the second floor. This becomes relevant. The next day I do my normal workups. There are other people that have admitted during the night. Some are being discharged. Some need this and another from social work and Uh, And I don't know if there's anything comparable to a medical social worker anyway in uh, United Kingdom. It would Uh, be the same um, thing. Yeah. Mm. So I'm I'm assuming that for your listeners that we're on the same page there. So um, anyway, Maria was in the mix. I took three years of Spanish in high school and didn't pay great attention. So we needed a translator. It was right there. Everything was fine. She needed money. She needed her family. You know, that was my job to delegate, actually, but uh, to help find these things and meet the needs of all patients. So about three days after she was admitted, I was in what's called the chart room, and I could see the monitor room, and someone was flatlining, which happens throughout the day and night in this setting, and uh, immediate response, and it was Maria. Maria. So I went and stood in the doorway of uh, a very easy resuscitation, uh, but with a lot of people in the room because, again, this was a University of Washington setting. So in a private hospital, you would get, you know, a nurse, a respiratory therapist, a physician. Not in a university-based medical setting. So you get the medical students, the nursing students, the medical residents, the medical interns, uh, the respiratory therapy students. And I mean, it was a packed room. Mm. And then I stood in the doorway and then went about my business. She was brought around and I had nothing I needed to do with her for the rest of the day, except I got a page later from a nurse. Um, and I'm giving more details than I usually do, but because we're going to like really go after mm. the story. Uh, I got page up to the unit again, called the unit by a nurse because Maria was awake and agitated and the nurse was afraid she'd flip right back into cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and they couldn't find the translator. So call the social worker, you know, do something. So I did my best. So I'm going to tell you in my words, what happened, because I never found a translator during this, uh, conversation Mm -hmm. with Maria. It was more than just a shoe on the left. She said that, uh, and again, I'm speaking English here, and if a skeptic wants to go after that, I welcome it, because this is going to be my language, sharing the story with you. Um, Anyway, first she says she saw herself, she pointed up to a corner of the, the ceiling and said that that's where she was, and she could look down and see everyone, and could correctly tell me what was going on, except for one little detail. She talked about all the paper that was coming out of a machine and being kicked under her bed. Now, I can be skeptical myself. In fact, for 20 years, I've helped to teach a course in critical thinking at a local college. I, I like looking at things carefully. No matter what the outcome, it's all interesting. I like research. Anyway, um, I figured, well, as a skeptic at that point, Uh, that she had been well-informed by the nursing staff as to what would happen if she did have another heart attack or full cardiac arrest, and and that she was just remembering all that. But the paper on the floor got me, but I chose to ignore it at the moment. But in fact, back then, big machines and wide mouse like that would spew out cardiac information Mm -hmm. that would then, if the patient died or lived, would be torn off and stacked up and studied by the medical staff at a later date looking for anomalies like that. That's nothing that's taught. But fine. Then she said she found herself outside of what she thought was the emergency room because there were ambulances coming in. And uh, she described the, the uh, curvature of the driveway and the one-way aspect of it. Of course, you want a one-way. Again, my skeptical mind is going, well, you don't want, you know, two-way yeah. ambulance mm-hmm. drop-off because then you have more ambulance needs, yeah. all the injuries. Yeah, <laughs> So fine. And then her room actually was right above the literal door to the emergency room where she had entered. So I knew that she was unconscious upon entering. I knew it was dark. I knew her eyes were closed because that's what we do when we're unconscious. Uh, but then I thought, you know, she's not a liar. This is not that person. But maybe in her confusion... Uh, She forgot that perhaps someone from housekeeping had pushed her bed over by the window so they Mm -hmm. could clean, which really wouldn't happen. These cardiac rooms are huge. (laughs) Excuse me, ma'am. I'm going to pull the plug here on you for a minute. (laughs) Get after this nasty stain. (laughs) But anyway, that's what I chose to. In my skeptical brain, which is why I understand skepticism. I get it. Uh, So I thought maybe that would happen, ignoring the fact that all ERs everywhere have a roof because weather happens, and, and that's just the case. And so at her window looking down, I couldn't see anything she was talking about. I'd have to be on the driveway. Fine. Then she said she saw the an odd thing caught her attention. She, was, she thought in a different part of the building, which is immense, by the way, um, three or four stories above the ground. She didn't know where she was, but she saw a tennis shoe on the ledge. And the reason she was agitated, my words and the nurse's words, not hers, was that she wanted someone to get the shoe only because she was so excited, like, wow, you're not going to believe what I saw. And it's so weird. And it's there somewhere. But again, no orientation. So it felt to me, again, being the nice social worker to go out and look. And I, I had a little vested interest in this, frankly, Um But I was a good social worker. So I went outside and looked up on the west side of the building, and I didn't see anything. Uh, It's been asked of me, why didn't you step back further? Because I did see a bird land on the ledge, and then I couldn't see the bird. So I thought, "Uh, I'm too close to the building. I need to go inside. I thought of going inside rather than going outside. Mm -hmm. Because if I step back, that would be the... uh, it's, we call it Medic One, but the big guns for resuscitation, not a mere ambulance, but actually coronary care units on wheels. And um, the whole process of 911, is it's now known, or first responders for paramedics began in Seattle. So we have a disproportionate number of survivors of health problems in Seattle, Washington because of Medic One. Mm-hmm
0: not a bad thing.
1: So I wasn't going to step into the medic one driveway or I would be the next patient looking for a shoe on the leg. And then someone said, uh, and in Leslie Keene's book, her editor was like the best skeptic I ever came across. If so she said, well, why don't you even go back further? And then I provided a picture of the cliff <laughs> <All> down <right. laughs> to interstate five. It's like, I'm not going to do that either. I will go inside. And I did. And, um, I have, uh, uh Irish in me at 17% so I call it this the luck O' the chem I started mm. looking on the wrong side of the building <laughs> inside I mean it was just like it took forever
0: mm. fun fact anyway. I'm, also, I'm also a quarter Irish
1: oh well Hens, hence the
0: surname McKinney.
1: <laughs> oh my last name my name is Clark mm-hmm. uh and somewhere in there, my Irish kin and my Scottish kin got together back hmm. in the day. And came up with Clark. Or wow. clerk. It's nice. So, but yeah. So, those are my UK roots and, and Welsh. But we can talk about that <laughs> off the recording. Um, so, I it, at Harborview, though, in that section, I was in the center section, again, of an immense building that had three sections. And the windows went almost to the floor anyway. So, I could walk by on the third floor. I started there because it was the next floor up. I could have gone to four or five, six or so. I didn't know, um, but it was mainly walking by. And the third floor was populated with coronary care patients that didn't need intensive care level anymore. So I knew everybody. It was not a big deal that I was walking around. Then I got to the west side of the building and every now and then there'd be a room that I couldn't see the entire window because of a two tiered, at that time anyway, metal cart on wheels that would hold stuff, you know, basins, mm-hmm. towels. And in one room, uh, not the first, but in one room, couldn't see, so I had to go in and look beyond the cart. And that's when I looked down. And Maria had been very careful in her description of the shoe, that it was large, uh, it was dark blue, there's a scuffed part of the little toe. And there's a white lace that went under the heel from her perspective, which was outside of the building. And I'm thinking, all that detail in case I see another shoe.
0: And there's <laughs> on the ledge. Here. Yeah.
1: I mean, what the heck is a shoe doing on a ledge anyway? A question that still stands. Um, and then I just went into shock because it was indeed everything she described. It was a man's shoe. I couldn't see the scuffed up little toe because I, I mm-hmm. didn't care to go out. <laughs> dropped to my death. But it was very undramatic, Darren. Uh, there have been several accounts of this. I recommend people only read my own work, and I'll be happy to direct people to four books where I have written this story, including my own. And um, uh, one author even had me climbing out on the ledge and scooting on my hands and knees and then going around a corner and scooting on my hands and knees looking for you know I, I had know. great legs and it was mini skirt fashion in those days I right. would have been flashing all of <laughs> downcasts
0: not exactly what you wanted to do yeah
1: no, not you to know. mention I'm not going to get out on a ledge anyway all I did was open the window and pick up the shoe it wasn't a big deal no, no. drama at all a good example, isn't back, it, of,
0: um, good example of Chinese whispers, how things can change pass between people and become something totally different from how it began.
1: Exactly. And that's what that's why I'm happy for the opportunity to go into what may be boring detail with you. But this is the horse's mouth. Yeah. Who knows when we'll meet again? Uh, these are details that aren't in any writing. This is the story from the experience of the social worker mm. that found the shoe more or less, whatever. Mm. Uh, but anyway, then it was a meanie. For some reason, I went back to a room with a shoe behind my, my back. And, uh, and uh, we had a translator by then, but it didn't matter because my Spanish was suddenly coming back. Because, I, But I asked her, um, can you tell me about what the inside of the shoe looked like? And she couldn't. Well, because she was outside, I to a shoelace. I could see the inside, and then I pulled the shoe out from behind my my back, and there the drama started. It was, Viva Zapata! <laughs> I mean, it was like, <laughs> my Spanish came back, and it was wonderful. And that was the end of it for me. I had done my job as a social worker, but it was a nursing staff that began to spread the word, and it was electrifying. And again, Maria was in the hospital for three weeks, so plenty of time for all kinds of people to go up and, observed the humble shoe. When she discharged from the hospital, she gave me the shoe, and that's why it's been in my possession. Um, but then, you know, nurses started talking about it to other nurses on other floors and other departments at the university itself. Nurses from other hospitals wanted me to come and speak and share it, and that was fine. I had no ambitions. It's like, okay, i will be happy to come over, you know, my lunch hour, no money involved, but fun to do. So I would go and meet with nurses. And When the show really got out in public though, so I was on a television show locally in Seattle as the death and dying social worker. And um, as it turns out, uh, and it was a live show, and I was only there to talk about what I do to bring comfort to people who are dying and their families. That was the only agenda. And that was interesting in and of itself because I was the only one I think in the world at that time had a specific job doing this with no other no other job descriptions mm-hmm. but that um, also it was, this show was packed out because the Seattle Sonics basketball team at that era had won the national championship, and it was like you know football in the u k It was mm-hmm. a big deal locally, mm-hmm. and the team was going to be on the same show, so they were uh, they had put up extra bleachers, all this stuff. And then the team didn't show up. So I was the whole broadcast. And they had to fill in time for about 300 or so or more probably uh, eager basketball fans mm. who weren't there to hear a social worker talk about death and die. Mm. But they had no other guests. Commercial break. And in the back row, the assistant head nurse from the coronary care unit A lot of my team came down to rah-rah, I was nervous. And uh, she said, ask her about the shoe. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, or not. I didn't want to. Yeah, I don't want that attention. (laughs) Are are you nuts? (laughs) Because I didn't want to be that person. You be that person. Mm. You talk about the shoe. But indeed, end of commercial break. And the question was, what's this about a shoe? then it became public and and then it just grew and then I don't know it just happened so it wasn't like uh, Maria planned to have this experience or I planned to share it it was just a thing but it is an amazing thing mm-hmm. because um, what was she doing out there another thing that was interesting Maria, that I haven't written about Maria didn't have a sense of like traveling you know from here to there is like a ghost. Mm-hmm. She said she thought about, from the time she was on the ceiling, she didn't know how she got up to the ceiling. But from that time on, she thought about where she wanted to go, and she was just there.
0: Mm. That's so like the point. There wasn't common. any yeah.
1: passage. And then she was distracted. Anyway, one distraction led to another, which eventually led to the shoe. And then she was resuscitated, and that was it for her. I mean, and then she was back. There were no other... Uh, things that she observed or are reported, anyway. So that's the hyper detail of what really did happen mm. that day. Mm. It's April 70, 77 or seventy eight, somewhere in there. Mm. Um, and then years later, you know, the subject of near death experiences became known and. And then uh, Raymond Moody heard about the shoe and all these researchers descended because it was a big deal. And um, the rest is history. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just, it's just out there, but it's an urban legend history. There is a fellow, a physician from the UK, not Pam Van Lommel.
0: Sampania?
1: Not Sampania. And I'm so sorry, I didn't think I'd be talking about him today. An esteemed <laughs> UK researcher who uh, is... Peter Fenwick? Does... Yes, thank Peter you. Peter
0: Fenwick. Mm.
1: Yes. Peter came to Chicago at a conference where I was also attending. And I can't remember if I was even speaking or not. But anyway, He's wonderful. And he gave his speech, and it was great. So I was in the throng of people after the speech who just wanted to, hi, just you know, want to shake your hand, sir, because he really is a great guy, by the way, just to the marrow. Um, so I wake my little line, and, and then I get up, hi. Well, I'm wearing a name tag because it's a conference. And he looked at it and went, whoa, you do exist. You do exist. I myself was an urban legend by then. And he grabbed me, he twirled me around like in his arms and says, oh, well, I'll drop the name of another skeptic. He said, what'll I tell SB? Mm-hmm. Susan Yep, is the name. Uh, yeah, anyway, it just, it made his day. So um, uh, my point is that this isn't just a Seattle, Washington thing or a United States thing. It's also an England thing or an Antarctic thing or an African, th- whatever. People who come close to dying and come back with something to report are happening globally. Resuscitation efforts are better. There's greater and greater numbers. Eventually, I believe, I don't know if in my lifetime or not, but eventually I believe there will be such a mass of people who are reporting this experience, that more and more research will be thrown at it, because what's missing is money, research dollars. There's really no skeptic that can fully say anything, because it just hasn't been explored enough, and that's, when I say research, I'm a snob, because I'm retired now, but Assistant clinical professor out of the University of Washington. I finally did make the grade, and um, uh, I can tell you, um, it's it's just uh, I don't know. It's just I'm going to go back to masses and masses of people to study, but my snobbery is that I really would prefer that to be at an established academic setting. Mm. Mm. And, I, I, and it is so snobby but I do feel that way well, it, it I needs think to research be to, should be
0: academic yeah. and it, go it needs to be to, to really get any kind of credibility and yeah. it's you know there are we have folks like Bruce Grayson and, and Penny Sartori and Jan Holden who are studying it as a as an academic interest at, at their universities but unfortunately as you say because it's mainly near when you say near-death experiences you think of people who tell stories on the news or on oprah winfrey your talk shows it doesn't have the the academic backing behind it to make it a genuine phenomena unfortunately or it's not wide enough widely enough accepted i mean you talk to anybody or you know the majority of people who are academics and you know 90% of them will say nah it's, it's just stories you hear because they've never been exposed to it i suppose so, so yeah academic research attention i just Mm. i know this drill
1: Mm. and i believe it will happen
0: it will and the the funny kind of ironic thing is that although the consensus is that near-death experiences are an illusion of some sort it's the consensus of those who actually research it who have been exposed to it that they are genuine phenomena and i think the, the the general consensus is so strongly against it because most of those involved have never even thought to study near-death experiences never even probably heard of them
1: well culturally too uh i'll speak for the united states because i can speak for the entire country (laughs) (laughs) not but i can in a way uh at least here we are a death-denying culture and i would venture to say globally people are afraid of death Mm -hmm. and i wonder if that isn't part of it like but then skeptics are Instead of going, wow, I'm afraid of death, so I would like to look at this more, it's like, wow, I'm afraid of death, and I don't want to look at that at all. I think a lot of it is fear-based, and I'm tossing that back to skeptics, Mm. that it's fear-based. I actually was in um, a debate that was a wonderful debate in the earliest of 90s in San Diego with a very esteemed astronomer um, who, uh, well-published in the United States and beloved, I might add, and it was his skeptical viewpoint that, uh, and I think I have 17 skeptical responses I've collected to explain it all. His explanation was, oh, this is just a reversal of the birth process, the death process. So the bright lights is the brain remembering the obstetric lights. Mm-hmm. The tunnel is
0: uh, the, uh, the brain
1: happen of the vaginal canal at mm-hmm. birth. And he was brilliant and I just let him go. And then I hung him because not all babies are born in obstetric situations with bright lights. That's, that's a first world experience. Mm-hmm. Also, I have since had a baby and I can tell you, the vaginal canal ain't an expansive tunnel. <laughs> It's not even remotely like the tunnel that people, which is described as expansive. I mean, you know, being warped like this. Not Just come I was in a tunnel.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this
1: so anyway, um, and then as it turns out, uh, the poor guy. I had two ringers in the in the audience and. They both uh, had their birth records, and they were both near-death experiencers, both happened to have tunnel experiences. They had known each other. They were ringers for me. I contacted them. I planted them in the group in the audience. Um, They were born by cesarean, so there wasn't. Yeah, they had the bright lights, but there was no uh, vaginal birth or anything. So he very kindly dropped the whole subject. Mm -hmm. He, he said, I. You're right. I can't argue against it. I don't know what I'm talking about. He was that level. That's
0: that's fair enough. Yeah. Yeah.
1: He ironically um, died on location in another place where I was working. So we had a a full circle moment. Uh, Many people were praying for him. He remained a skeptic. um, But he was grateful for all of the prayers. And Grateful that he had been opened up a bit now that he's facing his own mortality, about what might happen, and he was pretty excited about it. His wife wasn't so much, but he was. Uh, and Carl Sagan is this guy's name, and right. he, yeah, I mean this isn't like a drugoid but anyway, he just. He, he, that was that was the, the most noble skeptic I've ever come across. And he was mm. gracious enough to go, hey, you're right, I, you know, I didn't think about that. Mm. And so I sort of measure skeptics by that bar as well. How dug in are they in their skeptical responses? That tells me there's a bit of a mental health issue, actually. Mm-hmm. Or how open are they to information? And that's critical thinking.
0: Yes, indeed. I completely agree with you. I think a lot of those who purport... To be the you know the the kings and queens of critical thought are very much critical to any idea that goes against their own beliefs, but are very seldom critical to their own their own beliefs and aren't particularly humble to the size and the scope of everything that we experience, and that most of it we haven't got a clue where it i mean the idea to take the most kind of essential part of us, which is consciousness without consciousness, we don't exist and the assumption that the brain creates it. There's no mechanism as to how that could possibly take place. And it's an assumption that has just grown throughout the years to become a fact. And nobody ever questions that belief. They take that as kind of the foundational truth that everything should be built upon for consciousness research. And yet that foundation is an unproven, certainly unmechanismed idea. And yet Nobody ever seems to question that when they're arguing these sort of things and I think as you say, most of that is due to the cultural implication um, we' brought up in the Western culture where everything is very materialistic based in science um, it's not so much in the in the Eastern where it's more it, it's more focused away from material possessions and material sciences to more kind of how to live happily and, and how to respect each other as opposed to how do things work and how can we benefit from it. So I wonder then what, what are some of the most commonly seen or most publicly available skeptical arguments to Maria's shoe?
1: Uh, okay, well, we'll start with the one that hurts the most that I'm lying.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Just bold face lie. Um, that's easy to dismiss because I wasn't in a vacuum. I mean, there were other people. This Mm -hmm. was well-witnessed, you know. But still, I'll I'll go with that. Okay, I told a big lie. Mm -hmm. And then managed to convince everyone through hypnosis that this happened. I don't know. You can carry this out as far as you want. Um, That Maria had indeed been lying herself that she actually had seen the shoe on the ledge and uh, in case, before she had cardiac arrest. In case she had a cardiac arrest, she could report that and become really famous on the second floor of Harborview Medical Center. Mm. So that would be her goal. Um, I can assure you, though, I did find the shoe. So Maria was not lying.
0: Mm. So I suppose the, the idea of, of you lying as well kind of, encompasses full complete fabrication but also i suppose embellishment of facts to make them seem more dramatic and things like that
1: yeah which is why i want to make clear that it wasn't dramatic when i found the shoot mm. i opened the window and picked up the shit i mean it was like um uh, um there wasn't any drama involved until i went down and went the viva zapata thing that mm. was the drama uh Otherwise, um, um, what it did for me, though, I did gain. I I, want to be honest because I haven't really thought of this before. This is an interesting conversation. It may be boring to listeners, but I'm enjoying it. Um, That uh, in terms of lying and, and all of that, that's... Or, or Hucksterism. Maria never went out to make a dime on this. Neither did any nurse. Neither did any social worker, by the way. In um, the, the balance, it goes back to if you're going to believe it or not. Um, that or any story that's a near-death experience. That It comes down to personal choice. Um, and for the third time, I've lost my train of thought.
0: You were saying about ga- gaining from it?
1: I'm a good interview normally, and I'm like all over the map.
0: That's because I don't but, structure interviews. We we just chat, and it's you know, it's yeah, and this, things, yeah. And
1: mm. maybe that's why thank mm. you for giving me a a way. Of, but back to what skeptical responses. Well, you are.
0: you were saying about gaining from gaining from. Oh yeah, oh,
1: mm. thank you. Yeah, I did gain. Uh, I gained the knowledge that I wasn't crazy because I had had a near death experience seven years earlier, and then it was like. Whoa, there's two of us. So I gained some peace of mind. I also gained uh, a a propellant to my career because I had been looking for a gig. You know, if you want to advance in academics, you must do publishable research Mm -hmm. in peer-reviewed academic journals. That's the latter, and there's no plan B. And everything that I was looking at bored me you know, after effects of middle-aged men who have cardiac events, blah, blah. Mm. This was interesting. So I thought, well, there's two of us. So I'm going to start asking every patient who was resuscitated what they remember about being dead. And I think I used that word rather than while you were resuscitated because what do they know? If they're out of it, they don't know that they were resuscitated. And I got nothing for two months. And then I scored with a teenager, a 16-year-old girl. And this was after two months of, huh, or what? Or mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, and whereas Maria talked for a long time about what happened, this gal, who was there because of an overdose, she survived. Um, it was a deliberate, it was a suicide attempt uh, over a broken heart. Right. And... Um, I said, well, what do you remember about being dead or something to that effect? And she just sprung right back and said, oh, oh, yeah, it was with my Umpa And I thought, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. And she went on and on. It turns out Umpa was her grandpa. And that's who greeted her and loved her and sent her back. And and then I thought, okay, we've got, you know, a 52-year-old woman. We have a teenage girl. That's three. And on I went. And that was the basis of me finding so many near-death experiencers. I was in the heart of where people were going to report. Although they didn't always report. One guy outright lied to me. Uh, I was a backup social worker in the burn unit and um, talked to a guy who also had been resuscitated and he had no arms. He'd come in contact with a high-voltage wire and it electrocuted him and literally blew his arms off. Ouch. So, But, I you know, he's... He was resuscitated, so I wanted to know what he remembered. And he said, I don't remember anything. So, okay, fine. Years later, he came to a Seattle Lions meeting and said, do you remember me? And I didn't know who he was. I haven't met many people with no arms. But, you know, I didn't remember him, to be honest. And he told me that uh, he was that man and that he lied to me because he had to deal with so much pain. And then rehab mm-hmm. and then integrating back into um, his community and dealing with his disfiguring and all that he just couldn't deal with a near-death experience so if the lying happens it's on the side of not reporting of an under reporting mm-hmm. not an over reporting in my experience and again these are people and the people who come to Seattle ions they're just people they're not going to write books they're not going to be on your show they're not going to do anything, but, you know, go to work or go to the grocery store live their lives. They are teachers or postal carriers or, in one case, a bank robber. Um, I mean, you know, they're just people having, living their lives, mm-hmm. but there are millions of them. Oh, do you want to hear something else that's interesting mm-hmm. to me? There is something, this happened in my nerdith death experience too, but it's, It really caught my attention uh, of late where I was in a gray, foggy material place. It turns out I love old movies, Darren. I'm a a big cinema-holic. And it turns out that, at least in my non-academic research, that every movie made about the afterlife globally in World War II Involved gray foggy material as one drifted to death or near death right and there are tons of movies out of the uk that hit that my question also with you know how do we see without eyeballs Mm -hmm. when we're looking at something in distance what's with the foggy material i mean is that the way station is that the transition point no one's ever looked at that ever ever, ever. what do we do when we die they're beginning to look at it now. Uh, there's some brain measurements. And finally, the the uh, golden egg was laid uh, very recently by someone who was actually on an EEG machine right. running to breast, been published, published now. Mm-hmm. And indeed, there is brain activity for quite a while. That's news. So inch by inch, um, I think we will uh, learn whatever is going on maybe it's just nothing beyond the near-death experience but again how do people see without eyeballs that will always be my question um but i i believe that we will learn more in time that may explain it all or maybe we have found the division literally between um, science and faith Mm -hmm. and those are turbulent
0: waters yes very very much so okay so going back to these skeptical explanations of maria's shoe so we've done we've covered lying
1: oh um okay that she had really you know uh been there mm-hmm. um that uh well it kind of gets back just to my accountability to tell you the truth mm-hmm. um i didn't photograph the shoe i didn't videotape maria as i presented the shoe or anyone you know I, I didn't even think about it I didn't write about it as we've mm-hmm. established Um, so uh, some skeptics are saying again show me the shoe and then I'll believe I want to talk to the doctor and then I'll believe just a few days ago someone wrote and said could you send me the names of three people that you worked with at that time who also observed the shoe and I just no (laughs) easy response I don't even know where they are now what three people people are dying off I'm 74 I just turned that age People I'm talking about are older than me. So um, uh, eventually it's, you know, I'm going to die and you won't even have anything but this recording to Mm. remember me by. But that's for the shoe itself. That's basically it. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, But for other near-death experiences, there's Mm. been too much oxygen in the brain.
0: uh,
1: Not enough oxygen in the brain. Being asleep. Oh, I love that one. Oh, you were just asleep. I don't think so. If you're being mm. resuscitated, you're not taking a nap.
0: We can either kind of stop the recording there, or if you like, we can go just briefly into your own near-death experience, whichever you'd like to do. Uh,
1: we, can, we can go into my own near-death experience. Sure. If, I, if I can be uh, briefer, than I might have been like telling the whole shoe story. Mm-hmm. That was a long story. <laughs> I don't uh, – but, yeah, I uh, – instead of Kansas – um, which is kind of a comical state to be from because that's like the heartland of the United States where nothing strange ever happens, <laughs> <laughs> except it did. Um, anyway, I was at a driver's license bureau, Shawnee, Michigan, Kansas, with my father. Uh, for some reason, leaving the building, I collapsed into and through his arms. A uniform nurse happened to be passing. I want to tell you my dad's perspective first because he's my validation. A uh, nurse happened to be passing by. She ran over. She couldn't find a pulse. Um, uh, she wasn't sure I was breathing, I guess. I don't know. Um, two phone calls were made. This predates one phone call for an emergency response. So local volunteer firefighters were called and then um, an ambulance from the closest major hospital <clears throat> and fire department arrived first and uh, they applied i think it was called the anderson portable ventilator but again i don't remember any of this stuff but it was placed and sealed on my mouth and a flick of a switch happened but this new ventilator which my dad said was n- new packaging and they had a, stronger with plastic and all that to get it out, was applied. It had two features, though, to ventilate, which is what you want to do, or to vacuum, and that feature is because sometimes there are objects that obstruct an airway, and those objects have to be removed. Mm -hmm. So Heimlich method might do it, or a machine that would just vacuum out anything, and then with a flick of a switch, go back to ventilate. But it was on vacuum mode so whatever oxygen was left in my body just was immediately i had the life sucked out of me
0: Mm, quite literally
1: it just literally was true they knew immediately what had happened um uh, so again i only had my dad's report there was a great deal of fuss also growing number of people because like a shoe on a ledge this was attracting attention a woman's body on a sidewalk so um, finally, they gave up, uh, turned to my dad and said, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do. There's no place in the United States where anyone but a physician can determine a death. So medics, and I'm married to one, use euphemisms, like there's nothing more we can do. Then a man came out of this crowd swearing a lot, according to my dad, and uh plucked the firefighters off me and did what we now call mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, which now, as it turns out, isn't necessary. By the way, you see me pulse, pulse. just do that. If you see someone who isn't breathing uh, and doesn't have a heartbeat, all you have to do is the chest thing, um, about a thumb's distance down from the diaphragm, singing to the BJs, staying alive, yeah, stayin stayin that's right. Mm. You don't have to- Mouth to mouth anymore. I just want to get that in for the sake of the viewing public. So, and then that failed, and um, my dad's memories ends then in trauma. And but he remembers an ambulance coming, and uh, people were cheering because apparently I was unconscious but breathing on my own, and the uh, so body was thrown in the back of the ambulance. My dad jumped in the back of the ambulance with me. Off we went to the emergency room. Apparently things went downhill in the emergency room for a while but you know i hate to give away the ending to a good book but um she lived
0: i was worried yeah. for a minute yeah i to
1: buy the book and, and spend money to find that out <laughs> so that i can be rich and famous
0: and famous but, um, yeah
1: obviously ha, so that's my dad's memory oh and i might say yeah. though i did pull my medical records when i wrote after the light because i thought I wanna be the one to read them, not some journalist. And I was astonished now that I know how to chart. Um, I, my, my admitting records were um, unclear. Cardiac event, question mark, faint, question mark. Uh, primary reason for admission was uh, respiratory, it was suffocation due to the snafu with the ventilator. And I thought, I'm a snafu?
0: <laughs> <laughs> this like, he's like
1: pretty casual charting,
0: doctor. Yes, indeed.
1: But anyway, uh, what I remember is a woman's voice to my left saying, "I'm not getting a pulse. I'm not getting a pulse." And I turned to her with the same sense of reality with which I'm speaking to you, Darren, and said, oh, "Of course, you're getting a pulse. Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking. Something to that effect." She ignored me, so I thought, fine. <laughs> You know, I'll just, I don't know if it was a near-death snit or what, but I was like, huh. I, was, <laughs> I, I remember that feeling kind of hurled. I don't like to be ignored, especially mm. when I'm talking. <laughs> yes, and it, indeed. myself, though, in that gray material, just like that, I, it, that foggy stuff that I mentioned earlier in this program. And uh, interesting because I felt very calm. I didn't feel alone, but I felt like I was appropriately waiting for something my metaphor is that i'm at the gate of my local airport and i've got a ticket in hand and i'm waiting for my section of the plane to be called to board it felt like that like oh this is just the this is what we do here then um that foggy material was blown away by something you know (sighs) here's the problem there aren't words I, I struggle, and I've told the tale plenty. I, I don't have the right words. Everything I'm telling you is in a linear fashion, and it wasn't like that. But this light, for lack of a better word, brighter than a million suns. Should I ever look at a million suns? I haven't. Um, exploded under me and then spread out in all directions, and it was all love. And I said, homey home. I later learned that's what I used to say when I was a toddler learning language, and uh, one of my bougie 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 things that my parents would remember is me, you know, approaching our house in the car and going homey home homey home. <laughs> oh, keep me so cute! <laughs> I, I never heard that, but uh, I learned that when I told them. You know, I said homey home. Um, I feel like I was in the presence of what we would call God or creator or love. It uh, doesn't matter. <laughs> it was an enormous burst of impossibly intense love. And it was personal. Also, back to the eyeballs, you know, I could see and I could see this light continuing to spread in all directions. And I had a sense that I was looking at linear time. Maybe Earth time, I don't know, and then also it was layering endlessly on itself, and I didn't have like the thought like oh dimensions because I didn't think like that then, but now upon reflection, I wonder if that wasn't dimensions, and that space and time and dimensions uh, are like a Doctor Strange movie in the Marvel comic universe, the multiverse. I, I think that's like the Matrix. There's something out there like that, but. It's what I observed. Talk about subjective. Um, Then uh, I got to ask questions. The communication was not English. It was perfect, though. It was a combination of math and music. Skeptics might step in here. Um, But I will I've learned something about the brain since this experience. And uh, what I was The communication I was aware of was a combination of math and music, and the tie-in to consciousness and the brain as an organ in our skull might be a tie-in here because, um, as it turns out, there is a point in the brain, conventional wisdom is that you teach your kids uh, music under the age of 10 because the brain doesn't, it's the same spot in the brain, the brain doesn't really differentiate between math and music for a while. I'm not a brain scientist, so uh, that's my understanding. But it was interesting to me to learn that. That was our communication, though. Also, skeptics will say, oh, you get what you, ex- what you expect. I don't have any math skills, and I have no music skills on any level of any kind. So, But it worked perfectly. And then, uh, then I was told I had to go back, and I didn't want to. And I argued, but I'll sit back anyway. And then I failed to get the driver's license. I was after because I couldn't parallel park. So I was sent back and my first thought was a joke because i never got within six feet of the curb at the Department of Motor Vehicles. So I had to come back for a do-over on that. So I'm back and I'm about six feet from my physical body. And my first thought was, I can't even park myself. even odd for me to think of and odd for me to reflect on like how again the eyeball thing how could i see my body granted hard to see there were legs in the way and it was distorted but um it was me but the me that was me was not in that flesh my consciousness as we now have a word for my awareness was six
0: unfortunately at this point we lost connection and the call was dropped So that is the end of this episode with Kim clark Sharp, the nurse who reported the infamous Maria's Shoe near-death experience case. During this recording, me and Kim did go over a sceptical argument against the Maria's Shoe case by Paula Gia. You can find that video which was published earlier to the channel. I'll link it in the description below. But as always, thank you very much for listening to this episode of the podcast, and I'll see you in the next one.